sequentially uh, through God's Word and to study it uh, week upon week. And we are in the middle of a series through Luke's Gospel. We've made it to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we recently had a study through Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and now Jesus returns, uh, in a sense, to active ministry of healing. Uh, and His Word has gone forth, and His power will go forth, we'll see in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be reading today verses 1 through 10. You can find that on page 863, if you've not yet found it in our cart Bibles. Luke chapter 7, today reading verses 1 through 10. And before we go and read God's Word, please join me again in prayer as we seek God's blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we pray that you would speak, for your servants will listen. Cause us to listen by your Spirit, O Lord. Quiet our hearts before you. Help us to see something of the glory of Christ. We pray that you would give us your word and give us your spirit to make effectual unto salvation for all those who are yours. And you will call to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my house. Excuse me. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to the one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to the reading and to its hearing. I wonder when was the last time that you felt small and insignificant? I'm not asking about the last person who ignored you. I'm talking about the last time, the last experience you had that made you realize, despite all of our efforts to establish ourselves and all of our effort to promote ourselves and all of our effort to provide for ourselves, when was the last time you were made aware of just how startlingly irrelevant we all are on a cosmic scale? How small and insignificant we are. That can be an exhilarating experience. It's the experience of a small child laying in bed at night while the storm rages outside. It's the experience of stepping to the edge of the Grand Canyon and seeing that chasm stretch wide for miles and miles as far as you can see. It's supposed to be the experience that you have when you walk into one of the ancient cathedrals and all of the angles and the arches and the buttresses conspire together to make you sense your brevity before God Almighty. It can be an exciting thing to feel small and insignificant. But if you were a Roman centurion, that was an experience that you very rarely got to have. 
It had something to do with the character of the men that were chosen for that position. You see, centurions were not men who were uh, put in by the politicians. They were men who came through the ranks, men of fortitude, men of substance and gravitas. Uh, they were not wilting flowers. These were, these were men who were brave and very rarely probably felt as though he was small and insignificant. It also had to do with his position in the Roman army, the most formidable, most, uh, in, uh, most important, most significant force in the known world. Rome could move mountains if she wished. Rome could devour nations. And when a centurion gave orders, he flexed the muscles of an unconquerable empire. This man's entire career was an exercise in significance. And yet we see that this Gentile commander felt small before Jesus. He declared his unworthiness to stand before a rabbi in civilian garb. Now, if you are familiar with the New Testament, you're not surprised at that because you already know who this Jesus is. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is the Lord. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You know who He is. You're not surprised that this Gentile commander would even feel small before Jesus. But don't forget that during Jesus' ministry, very few people recognized that and saw that. In fact, just the opposite. During Jesus' ministry, people thought that he was insignificant, thought that he was in the way, thought that he was disposable. This is what John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus came unto his own, and even his own people did not receive him. And he was despised, and he was rejected. He was taken away. He was bruised, and he was spat upon, and he was crushed, and he was thought little of. But would that today we could have the view of the centurion, to catch a glimpse of Jesus that makes us feel small, that overwhelms us with his mercy. Today my hope is that as we walk through this passage, this is what we're going to see. This is the view that we're going to take, and along the way uh, there are several vignettes, a few snapshots that grab our attention. The first thing that we see is the picture of a good reputation. This is how we could summarize this man. He was a man with a good reputation. In fact, that's exactly how the elders of the Jews summarized him. You see that they came to Jesus and they said, here is a man who is worthy. Whatever it is that he needs, whatever you can give to him, here's a man who deserves whatever Jesus can give to him. Here's a man with an exceedingly good reputation. Here is a man full of equity and philanthropy. Here's a man who made his parents proud. And you can imagine if his father was still alive somewhere back in Rome or wherever, uh, whatever province he was from. Maybe once every few months he would go down to the local bathhouse and he would, he would speak to the other fathers and he would say, yeah, I got another, another update from the Syrian front. You know, my son's a centurion. Have I, have, yeah, I've mentioned my son's a centurion. They say, yeah, yeah, you mentioned it. You mentioned it, right. And he would tell them how well he had done for himself. And he's, he's in charge of the whole garrison, he would say. He keeps his men in, in perfect check, everyone in perfect order. They march at his command, and all the other dads would go home, and they'd grumble to their wives, and where did we go wrong? And if only we could have raised a centurion like so-and-so over there. It was the sort of thing that, that you felt proud of. It was a good reputation. And even the Jewish leaders thought well of this man. Now, centurions were nothing new. 
If you were part of an occupied people, you got to know the ways of the occupiers probably a little bit better than you wanted to. And they were familiar with centurions. They had seen other Gentiles sailing over the Mediterranean to come in and, and put in their time, putting the Jewish nation under the imperial thumb. But there was something different about this man. They had to admit it. There was something different about him. He was, he was part of the conquering forces, but he never treated the Jews like they were a conquered people. He didn't look down on them. He actually seemed to kind of respect them. And so he studied their, uh, their rituals. He knew their ceremonial hang-ups. He never asked them to do things that were offensive to them. Maybe he had even read their scriptures. For the last 200 years or so, anybody uh, who had the finances could get their own copy of the Old Testament in Greek, and a centurion certainly had the finances, and maybe here was this warrior philosopher who cares about more than simply military formations and blood and, and sword and battle. Here's someone who cares about deeper things and spiritual things. He was kind of a respectable guy, they would say, and and so they came and they said, he loves our nation. He built our synagogue. He cared enough that when the local synagogue was in disrepair or when it needed to be expanded, here was this Gentile with deep pockets who was willing to foot the bill. And they would show you, there's that plaque on the, on the cornerstone, this synagogue made possible by a gift of Flavius Quintilius, centurion of Rome, protector of peace, lover of the Jewish people. And they would come to Jesus and they said, he's worthy, you know. He's a man with a good reputation. He's a man of honor, a man of benevolence. He's even a man of compassion, and you could see it in the way that he treated his slaves. Aristotle, of course, told the Greeks long before the Romans that slaves were merely living tools. That's it, like a shovel, except it can walk around on its own. And another Roman writer told farmers that once a year what they ought to do to keep their estate in good order is to look over all of their implements, all of their tools, and if you had one that was broken or dull, you should throw it out. And by the way, slave masters should do the same thing because if you were a slave master and you had no more use for a slave, you could kill him because he was your property. And yet here's a man who cares for the least of his household. Here's a leader who goes to great lengths to see his servant restored. You see... Luke is telling you enough about this centurion to make you feel impressed. He wants you to agree, at least, at least in human terms, he wants you to get to the point that you can agree with what these leaders said in verse 4. Here's a man who's worthy. He's a man with a great reputation. He's a man who deserves, if anyone does, here's a man who deserves anything Jesus can give to him. Now the reality is that there's nothing wrong with a good reputation. The Bible speaks highly of a good reputation. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. There's something to be said for being respected in the community, for having other people look up to you. That's not a bad thing, but we also realize that a good reputation is a terrible thing to trust. And that is because all of our evaluations of ourselves, all of our human reputations, the way that we evaluate one another even, it's all subject to a sliding scale of our own judgment. You see this in the way that we evaluate one another and other people's reputations. This past January, uh, a Pittsburgh television producer named Michael Tellick was fired from his job at KDKA-TV for expressing his own sliding scale. 
It was a news segment about the upcoming Super Bowl, and he thought it was a good idea when a clip of Tom Brady was displayed to change the graphic at the bottom of the television to read, Tom Brady, known cheater. And he found himself without a job. Now, uh, he was interviewed after he lost his job, and he justified his joke by saying, come on, everyone in Pittsburgh hates Tom Brady. Being from Pittsburgh, that's probably true. Uh, but not so in New England. In New England, nobody hates Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the goat, and we see this sliding scale. What do you think of this man? Well, it, it depends a lot on how you evaluate, doesn't it? What kind of reputation does he have? It depends on our own sliding scale. And we see uh, that we can do the same thing when we come to evaluate ourselves, when it suits us. We can use a sliding scale. In 1992, an armed robber named Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested in Rapid City, South Dakota. And in his wallet, the police discovered a list of nine personal resolutions. Here were some of these resolutions. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Pretty good. Number two, I will only take cash and food stamps, not checks. Number seven, I will rob only seven months out of the year. Number six, if I'm chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. What is that? That is a sliding scale. That is an armed robber, a serial criminal, convincing himself that, you know, I'm really not as bad as those other robbers over there who do all of these other things that I have told myself I will not do, and, you know, I've got a reputation to uphold, don't I? And it seems ludicrous, but we do the same thing. We have ways of telling ourselves that we're, we're actually far more respectable than so-and-so over there of reminding ourselves that we have a reputation that means that we are worthy, worthy of respect, worthy of dignity, worthy of the admiration of all the other well-bred, virtuous people all around us. And we use this sliding scale and we look and we see that a good reputation is a terrible thing to be trusted. Well, the real danger comes when we begin to convince ourselves that on the basis of our reputation we can actually be worthy of God's favor. Because of our good name, we're worthy of his acceptance, that he ought to answer our prayers. There's a danger in thinking that our reputation can make us worthy of God's mercy. Maybe he can make him, excuse me, maybe even make us deserving of it. And I bet you've watched it happen. You've seen somebody and they get angry with God and frustrated because he isn't answering the way that they think he ought to answer in the time frame that he think, they think he ought to answer. And their prayers begin to sound more like an ultimatum rather than a request. Lord, I've never wronged anyone. I've never cheated. I've never stolen. I've never oppressed the poor. I've been a friend to the friendless. I've been a pretty good person. I'm not like that person over there, and now I'm in trouble. My mother is sick, and my job is in chaos, and my kids are driving me crazy, and now is the time when, when I need a little help. And that's how it goes. Worse, it comes from a believer. Lord, I have served you all my life. I have given more than a tithe. I've taught Sunday school. I've raised my children in the church. And why do you refuse to answer? And the danger comes when we attempt to use our reputation and our good deeds and our good name to leverage the Lord into coming to our aid. The problem is that our reputation is not the standard that God uses to judge those who are deserving 
of his mercy. God doesn't use the standard of our reputation, but the standard of his righteousness. Who deserves the good things that come from his hand? Who is worthy to have the Lord answer their prayers? And when you start to look at this new standard, it's not very good news for any of us. Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And in case you missed it, the summary comes in verse 23, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the scriptures ask, who is worthy of God's mercy? And the answer is no one. No one is deserving. Not the philanthropist, not the commander, not the beggar or the guru, not the priest or the politician or the pastor. There is no human reputation that can stand before the Lord and his perfect standard of righteousness. And so Isaiah tells us, your iniquities make a separation between you and your God and your sins hide his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what we're worthy of. All our best reputations, all the best people on all their best days. What do we deserve but separation from the Lord? And judgment at his hand. You see, the Jewish elders were wrong. No one is worthy of the mercy of Jesus. And a good reputation is a terrible thing to trust. And that is why it's such a blessing that the next thing that catches our eye is a humble faith. We've seen a good reputation, and we see now a humble faith, and for all the wonderful things that could be said about this wonderful centurion man, this lover of the Jewish people, his humble faith was the best thing about him. And it was the thing that was most unexpected. You notice his humility in verse 6. He directly contradicts what the Jewish leaders had said about him. Verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy even to have you come under my roof. And in fact, he repeats himself in verse 7, where our English translations use the word presume. Actually, it's the word worthy again. I didn't count myself worthy to even come to you myself. And so twice he humbles himself. He refuses to trust his position. He refuses to trust his reputation and to presume upon it. He is, of all people, least worthy of what Jesus can do for him. And that is unexpected. There is no human, no earthly explanation for why he would approach Jesus in that way. It certainly wasn't what he had picked up in his own culture. For us, humility is a virtue, at least in theory. We, we don't like people in high positions who are arrogant. We feel like we're being spoken down to. We want everyone, even those who are in high places, to be very humble. We want the CEOs of corporations to remember the little guy who works for them. Humility is a wonderful thing, but not if you were a Roman. Humility for the Romans was fit only for the slaves, only for those people who wanted to live and die at the lowest strata of society. It was cultural suicide for this man to refuse to go before Jesus on his own, to send somebody else in his stead, and in a sense, grovel at his feet and say, I am not worthy even to meet you in public. It didn't come from his culture. It didn't come from his nature. Scripture is abundantly clear about the dangers of pride. Scripture is also clear that pride is so dangerous because the temptation to pride originates in the heart and not somewhere else out in the world. 
C.S. Lewis is characteristically witty on this point. He says, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil, and pride leaves to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And that is merely the restatement of Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. When we talk about human nature, there is nothing more unnatural than we should humble ourselves before the Lord. There is nothing more natural than we should think more highly of ourselves than we ought, and, and to think that everything revolves around us. And so this man wasn't humble because of his culture, not because of his nature or his nurture. He wasn't humble because it was a convenient way to get what he thought he wanted. He was humble because the Spirit of God was at work in his heart. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, this is a hallmark of the Spirit's influence. It showed up first in, in Luke chapter 3, in John the Baptist. John, you recall, had been filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the days that he was in utero. From his mother's womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was uh, the great uh, witness that he gave to the Christ that was coming on the horizon? What did he say? There's one coming after me who is far more worthy than I. I'm not worthy even to untie his sandal strap, he said. What did the Spirit do in John? It made him humble. It showed up in Peter in a boat full of fish. When his eyes were opened to see the Lord as he is, and he fell on his face, and he cried out, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was that moment of spiritual clarity that made him humble. It will show up again in Luke chapter 15, in the parable of the prodigal son, when he comes to himself, when he has this moment of conversion. It says he came to his senses and decides to return to his father. And what is his plea? Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What does the Holy Spirit do when it takes hold of a person, when he takes hold of a person, when he makes us humble? And it shows up in this centurion on the fringes of Judaism. He's, he's just barely touching the hem of the garment of understanding who Jesus is, and yet the Spirit convinces him. The Spirit humbles him and draws him away from his own achievements and acclaim. And that's why he was able to send word to Jesus and to say, I am not worthy, and I did not presume. See, humility before Jesus is not something we come by naturally, and it, it is quite unexpected, but it's a work of the Spirit. This is how John Calvin put it. Before Christ healed his servant, he had been healed by the Lord, and this was the first miracle of the passage. And so we find here, this Holy Spirit humility working its way uh, in this man. But you also see this incredible faith. And here is a disconnect for us. Notice the logic in what he says. He comes to Jesus and he says, I am unworthy. I have nothing to offer. And yet, O oh Lord, would you please? And that's where we find this disconnect because far too many of us have believed this lie that there is only one way to come before the Lord, and that is to prove how worthy you are. 
how deserving you are that he should answer you. And so you come with something really impressive and you gather all of your, your religious works together. You gather your creed, you gather your reputation, all of your things. And you come before the Lord and you say, look what I've got to give to you and maybe we can strike up a barter. But that's not how it works. Here he comes. Rather, here come his messengers admitting that he has nothing to offer and he still seeks for help because that's what faith does. You see, the Spirit had given him a clearer view of himself. He realized that despite all of his own authority, his, his wonderful command within the Roman Empire, that he could say go and his servants go, that he could say do and his men do, he was completely powerless to command his servant to live or to recover. He might as well command the Mediterranean to dry into a puddle. He knew himself there is something that is greater than him. He is insufficient. He is small and insignificant. And he was able to see that by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also drew him to see the truth of who Jesus is. That there is one who is able to command the grave and disease. There is one who is able to say to all of creation, jump, and the grave says how high. The very powers of creation and recreation are links in the chain of command that Jesus is in control of. And he knew that Jesus had come. He had probably heard because Jesus had just preached this message in the synagogue he had built. He knew that Jesus had come to proclaim good news for the poor. Not for those who needed no good news, but he came to pro pro proclaim sight for those who cannot see. He came to proclaim freedom for those who are bound. Jesus came to bring mercy for those who know they need it. And so the Spirit was working in his heart, and he was able to come in humble faith, and he wasn't ashamed to come to Jesus with open, empty hands. He wasn't attempting to earn God's mercy. He was simply receiving it as a gift. And that's how Jesus says it always has to happen. Luke chapter 18, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And that's the funny thing about children. As, as Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, children are experts in getting gifts. And the reason is that children don't have all of the same hang-ups that adults have. Because if you give an unexpected adult, uh, an unexpected gift to an adult, what is the first, uh, the first impulse? Oh, no. But I didn't get you anything. And, and how can I feel okay receiving this if I can't reciprocate a little bit? How, how, can I, how can I live with myself? You've given me this gift, and I haven't gotten you anything. But what happens when you give a child an unexpected gift? Cool. Thanks. <laughs> That's it. Maybe you get to thank you, but they smile. That's about all that happens, and they take the gift, and they go and they enjoy it because they're not hung up on whether or not they've deserved it. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that. What brings you before the Lord? Is it your reputation? No. Is it your good upbringing? No. Is it all of your good works and all the things that you've done? Is it your... Is the fact that you've been baptized at a very young age in a Presbyterian church and you're a member in good standing? No. There's all these other things that we like to look at. None of those bring us to the Lord. And yet in humble faith, we're allowed to come and receive his mercy as a gift. Receiving God's forgiveness, even though we don't deserve it. It's, 
It's a faith that's humble enough to come to Jesus with empty hands. It's a kind of trust in Jesus that isn't afraid to admit that you're unworthy. Because you know that God gives his mercy to those who know they need it. Now there is one more vignette that we need to see. It really is the picture that all of this has been about from the very beginning. We've seen a good reputation. We've seen a humble faith. And the last picture is our gracious Savior. And it's been about him from the beginning. You, you saw that he was the driver uh, of the action. He was at the center of it all, and he will continue, and the story will continue to be about Jesus. But in the midst of all of the messages being sent and the needs being met, perhaps we've lost sight of that. And we get this final verse, and it almost seems like an afterthought because there's no fanfare. Nobody's leaping and rejoicing. Nobody's being presented in the temple. It simply gives us a record that what this centurion believed could happen did happen. Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. That's it. But just as in the same way that, that Jesus stopped along the way to draw the attention of the crowd to the faith of the centurion, I think this last verse is meant to stop and draw our attention to the one the centurion believed in. See, faith is only as good as the object you're trusting in. You may have wonderful faith in a failed investment. That investment is still going to fail, despite your faith. What was wonderful about the centurion was not just that he had this indomitable spirit to believe against all hope, but he looked to Jesus. He looked to the one who had all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who can say, let there be light, and there is light. The one who upholds the very universe by the word of his power. He's the one who holds creation in his hands. And he holds the power of life and death. And he holds the keys of death and hell and salvation. And he's the one who came in righteousness. He's the one who perfectly fulfilled the demands of God's law. And he came without sin. He came without iniquity. He came without spot or wrinkle or any blemish on his reputation of obedience to the Lord. And he's the one who's worthy to stand in the presence of God Almighty. And he tells us that he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to take that perfect reputation and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. He came to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And just like Jesus used this centurion's faith as a way of inviting the crowds around him to believe in whom he had believed, so the Lord is calling you today to see yourself for what you are. Not in the reputation that you like to tell yourself. Not in the record of obedience that you like to keep track of so that you can feel good when you lay your head down as a pillow at night. To see yourself as empty as the centurion saw himself as empty. And then to look to Jesus to see the one who is willing and able to save all those who draw near to him. This is the call today, to see and to believe, and to receive God's mercy that he gives to those who know they need it. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would write its truth upon our hearts. We pray that you would cause us not to leave from this place without trusting in you. And all those who are walking with you, O oh Lord, keep us always seeing more and more of the emptiness of our hands. Cause us to cling more to your, Christ, to your cross, to see Jesus Christ, and to rejoice in him. O oh Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.
We come now to a table which again proclaims the gospel message to us. Again, we come to signs and seals of God's covenant love. This time, bread broken and a cup poured out, symbolizing the body of Jesus Christ broken upon the tree of Calvary and his blood poured out for the remission of sins. This is a symbol of hope. It's a sacrament of rejoicing and of glory. This is for all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have trusted in him. It is a promise to you that just as he has been raised, so he will raise his own. He will take you to himself, that where he is, there you may be as well. This is a sacrament that looks back to what Christ has done. It's a sacrament that looks forward to what he will do. It proclaims to us the truth of that great marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of his people will be gathered together to eat and drink in his presence and in his kingdom. This is for those of his who have professed faith in him and joined themselves to his church. It doesn't have to be this congregation. But you ought to be a member in good standing of a church where the gospel is preached, where the Bible is believed. If you've never professed publicly your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you would allow this, these elements to pass as they go by. Uh, not to eat, as Paul says, and drink judgment upon yourself. Uh, but discern whether you're in the body. Discern whether the Lord is yours and discern whether he has called you to himself. And so come and eat and drink and proclaim his death until he comes again. Find the words of institution in Mark chapter 14 that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Please join me in prayer. Oh, gracious Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself as you meet with your people at this table. We believe that these elements are things of the earth and will remain so. There is no change in the bread or in the cup, and yet we believe that you effect a change by your Holy Spirit in your people as you cause us to eat and drink spiritually upon Jesus Christ. And so we ask that you would do that. Build us up, strengthen us in our faith, cause us to look to you as the promises of Jesus Christ. We ask in his name, amen. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered together with his disciples and he took bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
Christ said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. It's given for many for the remission of sins. Take and drink, all of you. 